Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary, from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune into Hometown History and embark on a journey through time, right from where you are. Listen to the following words. There may be a few that you're not familiar with. That's okay. If you don't know what they mean, just listen to how they sound. Here goes. Pointy. Glittering. Bloated. Broad. Frail. Strong. Sculpted. Ruddy. Pale. Smooth. Hairy. Thin. Cruel. Sorrowful. Dark. Incandescent. Even if you don't know some of these words, did anything strike you about them? For me, I noticed a lot of opposites, or at least a lot of clear differences in these descriptive words. But do you know what they have in common? All of them are taken from texts that describe a vampire. That's right, depending on who you ask, a vampire can be strong or frail bloated, or thin, pale, or dark. So, where did vampire legends come from? And how did we end up with all these different ways of describing the same creature? I'm Elise Parisian, and we'll sink our teeth into these questions and more on this episode of Unspookable. A vampire looks like a person with teeth, but they're very pale, and they always go out in the dark, and they're just scary, and they like to suck people's blood. A vampire is a little bit like a zombie. Um, Some vampires, some vampires used to be humans. But vampires bit them and turned them into a vampire. Vampires also usually live in haunted houses and have black clothing on them. And they can fly and turn into a bat. A vampire is some... It's basically like a human, just with sharp teeth, and they eat other eat humans right yeah they eat humans and i'm not really scared of them because like i feel like there's always people are always vampires for halloween and doesn't scare me or like they just look funny but like um like i was a wasn't i a vampire one year yeah i was a vampire one year i didn't scare myself i was just laughing at myself in the mirror The first mysterious thing about vampires is the word itself. We aren't really sure where it comes from. We've talked about lots of other creatures on Unspookable, and usually there's some clues in the names themselves that tell us something about them. Like the word werewolf is a combination between the Old English for man, were, and wolf. 
or mermaid from Middle English, and then French mer for sea, a maid of the sea. So what about vampire? Linguists, or people who study words and language, have actually debated where this word comes from. Our modern word, vampire, kind of sounds like words from many different older versions of Slavic languages in Eastern Europe. Words like upior and upir, which in turn came from an older Turkish word, uber, meaning witch. Some other scholars say that the root meaning is the verb to drink in Greek or Lithuanian. Still others claim that our modern concept of vampire comes from Eastern Europe, Transylvania, Romania, or Hungary, and that the word originated in those places. We may not know where the word first came from, but we do know that cultures all over the world have had vampire-like creatures since, well, since culture has existed. Vampires are one of those supernatural ideas that somehow popped up in our collective imaginations thousands of years ago. The broadest way to describe a vampire is a being that lives by feeding on other life forms. In modern times, specifically their blood. Even with this very general idea, there are so many variations throughout history that many of them wouldn't necessarily be recognizable to us as vampires at all. At least not with the pointy teeth, or the cape, or the whole turning into a bat thing that some of us may think of now. In many ancient cultures, creatures existed that could suck the life from the living in different ways. In Mesopotamia around 2000 BC in the Sumerian religion, a spirit called Edimu was thought to travel around like a ghost or a gust of wind and steal life from the young. The Edimu could be representations of a person who was improperly buried come back to life and now trying to stay in life by taking revenge on the living. Ancient Persian pottery shards have been recovered depicting a humanoid creature attempting to drink blood from humans. In Chinese mythology, the Jiangxi, or hopping zombie, would hide in a coffin or a cave during the day, and then come out at night, hopping with its arms outstretched to find the life force, or chi, to feed off of. Ancient Greek mythology had Empusa, a bronze-footed demon who could transform into a young woman to try to lure young men into her clutches and drink their blood. As we can see already, even thousands of years ago, humans had this intense preoccupation with the living versus the dead. But when did these life-force-sucking beings become more like the vampires we know today? We'll take a look at the next phase in vampire history, right after this. I don't think a vampire can be real, because if you listen to all the other episodes, you can tell I do not believe in, like, weird paranormal things other than if it's cartooned because that's just different. I think vampires could be real and I feel like there are vampires and like people just are like so kind out. I don't know like places and you know like people like are at night like out at night and like you never see like that one person that's like you're like why do I only see you at night? Like, you're at dinner or something like that, and, like, you're only here. And I 
At this time and this place is open all day. A vampire can never be real. Some people think vampire bats actually are vampires that turned into bats. It's wrong. And some also people think that vampire bat, vampire bats drink blood. They do, but it's not human blood. They drink cow and other animals, animals' blood. A graveyard in the Russian countryside. A young boy dressed in all white is placed onto the back of a white horse. The horse walks into the graveyard. The adults watch the horse and the boy closely, encouraging them on. All of a sudden, the horse shies away from one of the graves. That one, someone says. The group rushes over and begins digging up the grave. Why? Because there's a vampire in it, of course. That's right. Just a few hundred years ago, in parts of Europe, tests like this one, with the boy and the horse, were thought to be able to identify the graves of people who are going to become revenants. Another word for the undead, or vampires. There are many versions of this particular test, with different colors of horses or different rules about the young person on the horse, all with the same goal. Stop a vampire before they can get out of their grave and terrorize the town. Starting in the Middle Ages, vampire hysteria would routinely take over towns, or whole regions all over Europe. Like we talk about with werewolves on this show, and like we'll be talking about with witches on an upcoming episode, the panic would often start because disease or other medical conditions were blamed on the supernatural. People didn't understand how certain diseases affect the human body, or even how a body that may have been healthy in life would decompose in death. In the 1600s, a French newspaper published this explanation of vampires, after news of a vampire panic in Poland and Russia spread to other areas of the continent. They appear from midday to midnight, and come to suck the blood of living people and animals in such great abundance that sometimes the body swims in its blood which has spilled out into its coffin. They say the vampire has a hunger that causes him to eat the cloth he finds around him. He goes about at night, violently embracing and seizing his friends and relatives, and sucking their blood. Until he causes their death. Then one finds his body in its coffin, bloated and ruddy, even though he may have been dead for a long time. Yikes, right? And even doctors, religious leaders, and other officials at the time were confirming these accounts. Maybe you've noticed there's no mention yet of the type of vampires we might think about today. No pointy fangs. Not many accounts saying that being bitten by a vampire can turn you into a vampire. We aren't yet talking about a pale figure in a cape lurking in a castle. No, the people spreading these accounts of vampires were doing so specifically because they didn't understand how a body decomposed. And they didn't understand what we now know as pathology or the study of how diseases work and how they spread. For people in the 1500s, an explanation for an unfamiliar illness that quickly spread was often evil spirits, demons, vampires, or other supernatural forces. The potential vampire in that article is described as bloated and ruddy, meaning swollen and having a healthy-seeming red color. Because people didn't understand how the fluids or gases in the body changed after death, 
They might have assumed that a body still expanding after death meant that the body was feeding on the living. In that article, they mentioned the vampire eating the cloth around him. Many people around this time were buried in a type of shroud or a cloth wrapping. Fluids that came from the body after death could cause the shroud to decay, making it appear that the corpse was gnawing at the fabric. Between the 1500s and 1700s, not only were newspapers regularly reporting on vampirism, you could even study vampires in school. Students of medicine and theology, or religious studies, all over Europe wrote long papers about vampires and other revenants with names like On the Chewing Dead and Treatise on the Apparitions of Spirits and on Vampires. Imagine going to college specifically to try to prove if vampires were fact or fiction. Eventually, some leaders did start to try to convince the general population that they weren't being terrorized by vampires. In Austria, Empress Maria Theresa sent her personal physician to study the bodies of suspected vampires in one town. After he concluded that vampires did not exist, Maria Theresa created a law against digging up the graves of those suspected of vampirism. In the mid-1700s, Pope Benedict XIV tried to spread the message to his followers that vampires were fictions of human fantasy. And yet the vampire panics persisted. We've mentioned before on Unspookable that as Europeans colonized other people's land, their beliefs and superstitions came with them. In the 1800s, in states like Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Vermont, descendants of those European colonizers were experiencing an outbreak of tuberculosis. But they didn't know that's what it was. At the time, many referred to this disease as consumption, because symptoms included a bad cough, possibly with blood in the lungs, and weight loss. People thought that those with the disease were being consumed. And during these outbreaks in the mid to late 1800s, they decided that vampires were to blame. They thought that once there was one vampire in a family, that vampire would take the lives of the rest of their family and anyone who got close to them. Graves were dug up, bodies were buried with metal or bricks or other materials meant to prevent the body from leaving the grave, and sometimes they were even burned. In one famous case in Rhode Island in 1892, a young woman named Mercy Brown died of consumption. Many in her family also died. And in March of 1892, her brother Edwin was fighting for his life. The townspeople convinced the remaining members of the Brown family that Edwin's illness was caused by vampirism. Someone who had died before him was feeding off of his life force. When they opened Mercy's crypt, her body had not decomposed the way they thought it should. A surgeon, a newspaper reporter, and all the neighbors that were present insisted that she was a vampire and was causing her family's illnesses and deaths. Pretty scary, right? So, was Mercy a vampire? Was consumption actually caused by vampires in the family? Let's take a look at some of the facts that we know now, that people in the late 1800s didn't know. First, they said that her body didn't decompose because she was a vampire. But how could it have decomposed? It was winter in the northeastern part of the United States, and she was in a crypt. There is no way that her body could have decomposed in freezing temperatures. 
Superstition about consumption led the townspeople to believe that when many people died in a family at once, it was because of a link to a vampire, like they thought with mercy. But this was only because they didn't understand how disease spreads. Tuberculosis is caused by bacteria, easily transferred between people when someone infected coughs or sneezes. So like any illness, from an easily curable stomach bug to a more serious infection, it is likely to spread between people who share a home or classroom or other space. But imagine if you didn't know that you should cover your mouth when you cough or wash your hands regularly. Imagine if you didn't know that germs and bacteria spread illness. Well, you might just think that a vampire was responsible instead of imagining that tiny organisms invisible to the naked eye could cause everything. Okay, okay, I promised you capes and fangs though, right? And we'll get there in just a moment. I would say one famous vampire would be Dracula and Nosferatu. The vampires I've heard of throughout everything are like the all of the like all of the vampires and monsters in Hotel Transylvania and my va- my babysitter's a vampire and a lot of Netflix shows that are just the same as my babysitter's a vampire they're literally just the exact same thing with a different name uh Nosferatu has actually creeped me out because I have covered my eyes when the door slams open and he's standing right there. That has scared me. Did you listen to the zombie episode earlier this season? Do you remember when we were talking about that novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley? In 1816, Shelley was the only woman in a contest between a group of writers to see who could write the most terrifying horror story. Shelley won the contest, of course but another contestant's work also made an impression. John William Polidori wrote The Vampire, spelled V-A-M-P-Y-R-E, about a sophisticated and charismatic nobleman called Lord Ruthven, who befriends a younger man. They travel the world together, but the young man doesn't realize that Lord Ruthven is a vampire until it's too late. At the time, European readers were especially interested in the types of stories we now know as gothic horror, which combined elements of fantasy, horror, and romance. Today, we're used to modern writers, filmmakers, and other storytellers combining elements from many different genres. But at the time, the idea that something could be both scary and romantic was very exciting and new to readers. The Vampire was the first popular example of a more modern version of a vampire story, one that combined a lot of the elements of vampire folklore that we know today into one character. Lord Ruthven appears in London's high society mysteriously. Who is his family? Where did his money come from? No one knows, but everyone is drawn to him. This is a lot different than the stories about bloated and disheveled vampires that everyone talked about in relation to disease superstitions. While those superstitions definitely still existed in the 1800s, the closer we get to modern medicine, like the understanding that tuberculosis is caused by bacteria, which started to become common knowledge at the end of the 1800s, the more vampires become exciting parts of a new genre of storytelling and not something that townspeople have to dig up their relatives' graves to protect against. 
You might have heard of another famous vampire novel that came out in 1897, Dracula by Bram Stoker. This one has it all. A vampire nobleman in a castle in Transylvania, Count Dracula is trying to buy property in England in order to find new blood and spread his undead curse. Stoker's novel also introduces the character of Van Helsing, a doctor, scholar, and vampire hunter who is Count Dracula's nemesis. Dracula, Van Helsing, and other characters in the novel would go on to appear in countless other books, movies, and TV shows. The German film Nosferatu from 1922 was actually an unauthorized adaptation of Stoker's novel. The filmmakers did not get permission to use Stoker's story to make the film, so they changed the word vampire to Nosferatu and Count Dracula to Count Orlok. They were later taken to court by Stoker's family, and all copies of the film were supposed to be destroyed. But at least one was saved, and copied over the years to become one of the most influential films of that time period, with an eerie gothic feel that many people recognize even if they haven't seen the film. That's how much it impacted later filmmakers. You might say that Nosferatu started a lot of vampire films' visual tropes, or widely identifiable imagery that is used and adapted many times. As of today, more than 200 films have been made that feature the character Dracula. So, as a very popular example of a vampire, what are some more of his characteristics? He is immortal. But the Count is weakened by sunlight, garlic, and could be killed and turned into dust by a wooden stake to the heart. He does not have a reflection in a mirror or cast a shadow. He must carry grave dirt around with him in a coffin when traveling in order to keep his strength. He has fangs and is tall and pale. Holy symbols, such as the Christian cross, repel him. At the end of the book, Count Dracula is stabbed in the heart with a knife, which has a similar effect to the stake, and he crumbles to dust. Many readers would agree that Count Dracula deserved his end. Although he makes for a fascinating character, he's not exactly a good guy. But what about the characters that could be called his descendants? At the top of this episode, the words that you heard come from the newspaper article from the 1600s, from the first description of Count Dracula in Stoker's novel, and from a book and film series you may have heard of. Here is the quote, this time with the character's name. Edward in the sunlight was shocking. I couldn't get used to it, though I'd been staring at him all afternoon. His skin, white despite the faint flush from yesterday's hunting trip, literally sparkled, like thousands of tiny diamonds were embedded in the surface. Does anyone recognize it? This is a description the human character Bella Thorne gives of the vampire Edward Cullen in the Twilight series. Written by Stephanie Meyer and eventually adapted into a very popular movie series, Bella and Edward are in love. But as you can probably imagine, a vampire being in love with someone he also has the urge to eat can be kind of complicated. Meyer's book introduced an interesting vampire characteristic, one that likely would not have been imagined in the gothic horror days of Bram Stoker's vampires. Edward and his vampire kin glitter in the sunlight. That's right, they avoid sunlight not because they'll burn up, but because they are so uniquely sparkly that everyone would know that they weren't human. 
Edward and many other more recent vampire characters in pop culture now have all the complexities of human characters. No longer are they just the stuff of horror films, they have desires similar to people. Have you ever seen the animated movie series Hotel Transylvania? In it, Count Dracula runs a hotel where monsters of all kinds can take a vacation from being misunderstood by the human world. The Count's daughter falls in love with a human, leading to questions about if vampires and other monsters can coexist with, or even start families with humans. What does it mean when the stories we tell about creatures that once only horrified us become more empathetic? What does it mean when we give the qualities that we consider best in humans, like generosity or compassion or kindness, to figures we once considered monsters? Imagine someone in Rhode Island during the Vampire Panic being told that in the future, we would see vampires as fictional creatures that could be really interesting in books and movies. Well, of course, first we would have to explain to someone in the 1890s what a movie is. But then, what do you think they would say? As with zombies, or werewolves, or even something like The Legend of Sasquatch that we've talked about on Unspookable, the trends in how we see the monsters in the stories we tell, they say a lot about who we are as people. When we can allow superstitions to fall away, because modern science teaches us that the root causes for diseases, for example, and we can let vampires be the stuff of fantasy and even fun or exciting fear, the qualities we give them tell us who we want to be and what we fear becoming. Thanks for listening to Unspookable. I'm your host, Elise Parisian. This episode was written by Eleanor Riley Condit, produced and edited by Nate Dufort. Our theme song and additional music composed by Jesse Case. Our logo was created by Natalie Kewen, with episode artwork by Sarah Stitches. Special thanks this week to our guests Blythe, Al, and Olivia. If you enjoy the show, make sure to tell your friends. You can leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice, or share an episode on social media. Speaking of social media, you can find Unspookable on Twitter and Instagram. Follow us for a peek behind the scenes and for updates on the show. Unspookable is part of the Soundsington Audio Network, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to www.soundsingtonmedia.com. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.